Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today we're going to talk about life and literally death decisions that were made by the early Antarctic explorers. Now, you may have think you know these stories and you may have read books about them or seen movies about them or seen documentaries. However, we're going to look at these stories in the different light, particularly what they teach us about keeping a team and yourself motivated, about coping with failure and about having a goal beyond just reaching a destination. I think you're going to be surprised by how much wisdom you get from these stories for your leadership, especially today. So my guest today is Brad Borkin. Brad has a lifelong interest in how people and businesses survive and thrive in the almost impossible situations. He's co-author of the book, When Your Life Depends on It. And this book focuses on the life and death decisions made by the early explorers in the Antarctic and reveal unparalleled listening to leadership, teamwork, and determination, as you can imagine. Brad uh, has done a lot of talking and lecturing about the topic at Antarctic conferences, on cable TV in the U.S., on numerous podcasts and internet radio shows. And I should also say he works for SAP and um, has even done a lecture about his book on a passenger expedition to the Antarctic, or Antarctic, I should say, originally from the U.S., now based in London. He was recently honored with being a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society. And I should say his book was just listed as a finalist of a bestseller also. So, Brad, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda. It's great to be here. And I've with listened to many of your shows and, and just uh, a wonderful selection of, of topics and, and uh, people that you interview. So, really privileged to, and honored to be part of it. Thank you, Brad. Well, I'm looking forward to adding your story, your perspective to that long list. I have to start, though, one of my favorite ways of opening there is I just get, I mean, curious in why people get interested in the topics they're interested in. So what started you in thinking about these early explorers? Well, I used to uh, go to the library, and my mom works, worked in the local public library, and I'd have to go there after school two or three days a week. And as a young boy, being fairly bored in the library, thinking, why can't I be out with my friends playing basketball or doing something else? And one day I happened upon a book. That book was about Shackleton and Scott and the early expeditions. And it just totally captivated me. It was just the most enthralling thing of these men pulling sledges across the cold Antarctic climate, you know, tundra and, and, and heading towards the South Pole. And why would people do this? And why do they put themselves in danger? just to get to a spot on Earth that would look, from appearance point of view, would look exactly like every other point within 100 miles or 200 miles from where they would be standing. And it just was the most uh, captivating thing for a young boy. And from then on, I always had this interest. And then as I got older, I developed an interest in decision-making and thinking about why do people make the decisions they make in terms of, like, why do we buy the objects we buy in response to advertising? 
Why do businesses make the decisions they make? Why do people make decisions about relationships and, and all sorts of different sorts of decisions? And over time, just decided there's, there's something missing in the literature. The literature is how is a combination of decision-making and these great Antarctic stories. Because the thread that goes through all of these wonderful stories in Antarctica, deal with, it deals with decision-making, life and death mm-hmm. decisions. They make lots and lots of life and death decisions, but very rarely ever die. And it was just the most captivating thing. I think that's where I got this interest from. Yeah, the, that makes a lot of sense, because particularly as I read through the book, I see at every point, even years before you start the expedition, how many decisions there are that need to be made. Um, and that are going to affect ultimately your success or, and your survival on that expedition, but they're made well in advance. And then there's nothing. Once those decisions are made, you can't reverse them and wind back the clock and say, oops, let's get a different ship. You have the ship you have. So I see why this one appeals to you from a decision point of view. So. You know, there's several, so many stories in here. And is, if you know anything about the Antarctic exploration, the ungodly conditions. Describe for people, Brad, just in a couple seconds, what it was like from a physical point of view to be in Antarctica at that moment in history. Well, to, to put it in perspective, the in the early 1800s, more was known about the moon than about Antarctica. They didn't even know Antarctica existed until the 1820s. So but in the 1820s, if you, if, you know, people knew the distance of the Earth to the moon, they knew the, the patterns of the, the eclipses and all sorts of different things, and yet we didn't even know Antarctica existed. And the first human beings that put on Antarctica in 1895. So these expeditions that I'm writing about, the expeditions of, of Captain Scott, Shackleton, Mawson, who was an Australian, and Amundsen, who was Norwegian, they were started in the early 1900s, like in 1901. So they're literally like in a period where no one had ever really stepped foot in Antarctica until 1895, and now they're six years later venturing into the interior. And they really had no idea what to expect. And you talk about being out of your comfort zone on the theme of your show. I mean, these people were way out of their comfort zone. They had this, they had visions of like, oh, we'll have three man sleeping bags until they realized and got there and tried them out that three people in a sleeping bag might be warmer, but no one gets any sleep because as soon as one man roll, rolls, the other two, yeah, the whole sleeping bags are rolls over and, uh, and things like that. So they were experimenting continually with materials and they had no idea what exactly to bring. So some of the some of the things where they had too much of, some they had too little of. It there was a lot of learning as they went. Yeah, and extremely. I mean, the winds were horrendous, so people would be snowed, you know, like snow blindness, and snowed into their accommodations as limited as they were for days and couldn't leave them and they were very rugged accommodations i mean then we're talking about canvas tents for the most part against minus am i remembering this correctly minus 77 degrees fahrenheit yes so yeah minus 77 was the coldest they ever experienced but they were um so yeah so antarctic winds can get to 200 miles an hour the it can be relentlessly cold and the point where every, all the 
equipment, almost all the equipment they had was metal. Then there was no plastic in that, that era. And so you would have plastic, or when you cosplay, they had to be taking off their gloves. So they'd have gloves that were like three layers of mittens and gloves. And, and a lot of times they'd have to take those gloves off. And literally their hands would, would freeze almost instantly. And so it's um, living and working in those environments, but they had this, all the expeditions had an interest in science. And so they all had these lots of different sort of scientific equipment that they were working with, not just cameras, but they were working with, with all sorts of different sort of measuring things for measuring wind and measuring temperatures and measuring uh, ice and all sorts of different things. And, and they're also interested in studying the animals down there. So there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of challenges with the climate and, and even going to the latrine could be hazardous to the point of, of death because they realized they had to early on, they didn't realize that that in, as it got darker and darker through the winter months, that there really was no, no sunlight on all starless nights or, or foggy overcast nights. They just couldn't see. And you could get lost getting from the latrine back to either to the latrine or back from the latrine from the main hut that they had. And so it's uh, and eventually they set up the string system, but it it, it was a, a rope based system to to mark out the the path. But it, it, there were so many hazards and so many unknowns that they were in, and the climate is. Uh, uh, a very dry climate. Even though you think of it like it, like there are always these blizzards and snowstorms. At the same time, it can be in the in the summer it can be very sunny and to the point where the sun reflects off the snow, and very quickly you can get snow blindness. That's very painful. They also didn't know anything about scurvy, and so they were they were uh, constantly battling scurvy because as soon as you leave the perimeter or the coastline of Antarctica, there are no animals. And okay. so on the coast, you have penguins and seals. But once you're interior, you only have the food you're carrying. And, and they didn't know what was the cause of scurvy, but there were so many at risk of it. That's, I mean, it's, it's a, it was not that many years ago, you know, what, a, hundred, a little over 100 years ago when these first ones started. It's incredible how much we have learned since then in terms of material supply, in terms of tents, in terms of clothing and equipment, in terms of how to deal with those extreme conditions and in terms of the diseases. All right. So let's talk a little bit about that adversity. Um, so every one of these explorers faced unbelievable adversity and their plans changed and they failed at more things I think than they succeeded at. How do you, you know, pick one of the stories and tell me how you see that they kept themselves and more importantly, their team motivated. So there, there are so many stories that, that are in the book and, and, and just to choose one. And it, uh, so, they relied on, on various techniques, and they're techniques that are really useful in, in modern business as well. And one of them was everyone on the team knew the goal of what their expedition was. And the goals were quite simple. So it's not that the, the men themselves, it's all men at this period of time, it wasn't that they were unintelligent. They were, for many of them, were scientists. But, and, and educated at places like Cambridge and Oxford and, and various places. But they, they were, um, the, 
having very simple, some clear, simple goals. Our, our goal is this sort of science. Our goal is to get to this destination. Our goal is to explore this coastline. Kept teams focused, and everything was done in teams. I think that was probably one of the key things that worked very well was uh, working in, in in three and four man teams, or sometimes larger teams. And, and uh, but probably the greatest story of keeping a team together and keeping a team focused was the, uh, the quite famous Shackleton story where uh, he, as this was later, this is around not, uh, after the South Pole has been discovered, he sets up an expedition where he wants to be the first to walk across the continent from one end of the continent of Antarctica to the other end. And the, the idea was two ships would come down and one ship would, would land them heading down from, really from the Argentina side of Antarctica, the Weddell Sea, and the other ship would come down from New, New Ze- Australia New Zealand and go down to, to the other side of Antarctica. There was no communication between the ships. There was actually no communication between even men on an expedition. There was no walkie-talkies or anything like that. And so they were just assuming the other ship would arrive and be able to lay these depots that they main team, Shackleton's main team, would pick up along the way. And so his, Shackleton's team would carry enough goods to get them to the South Pole and a bit beyond, and then they would be relying on this other team from this other ship to lay the depots. So that was a scenario, and what happened quite famously was that Shackleton never even starts that journey. He and his men, they're in the ship, and their ship gets iced in and then crushed. And so they end up with 28 men stranded. There's no one going to come rescue them. They have no communication. There's no, they have no telephony. There's no radio. There's no, nothing to get back to civilization. And they're really left on their own. And so here you have a very desperate situation where you've got this, all they have are lifeboats. They're 800 miles from civilization or further at that stage. And it's just like, what do we do? And uh, it's, it's these these moments when Shackleton works with the man and shows leadership and togetherness. And I think this is one of the great stories, one of the great stories, and, and I, many people know various stories, but there's a one story that really st- sticks with me that, that I thought, well, this, this binds a team together. Because back then in those days, you had what was called the officers, and then you had the men. They were all male. Right. So, but they were, the officers got better food. They had better accommodation on the ship. They were sent to the people in charge. The officers were generally naval officers or they were the scientists. And the men who were the lower ranking people uh, were basically more or less ship hands for, for the bulk of that journey. But now all of a sudden you've got these 28 men, some officers, some of that were these lower ranking men. But only, they only had 10 for sleeping bags. So what do they do? Because everyone's camping out now on the cold ice. They have tents and things like that. But they're like, the ship's crushed. They're trying to decide what to do. They really can't go anywhere. So they're in the middle of this giant ice floe. And ice floes can be as big as Luxembourg. They're, they can be enormous. So they don't really know where the ends of this thing yet are. And they basically are camping out. And... Uh, and, and Shackleton says to the men, we're going to draw straws to see who gets the first sleeping bags. So this is quite interesting, because normally in this situation, 
the officers will get the first sleeping bags because they're the higher ranking people. And Shacklin sets up the draw. And what was so surprising to everyone, well, certainly to the, to the men, the lower ranking people, they got the first sleeping bags. And Shackleton had rigged the draw. And it was this one moment where it was like, we're all in this together. And all of a sudden, rank doesn't matter. We're going to survive this. And we're going to figure out a way through this. And everyone on the team is going to be a contributor to making this successful. So rank doesn't matter anymore. It was, very, it was just a, a fantastic way to bring a team together. It's an interesting one, too, because we forget how important hierarchy was, particularly coming from the British naval um, and scientific community and the strength of the hierarchy in that world. So class system as well as hierarchy. And then, you know, to break that, because that was just unheard of. I mean, the classes didn't even mix in that society at that point in time. And then to give your sleeping bags to the lower ranks is, is is truly remarkable. How did his officers then respond to that? Were, were they on board? Did they resist? Do, you know, do they see the power? No, they were totally. Yeah, they were totally on board. They had no. They had realized that. Well, Shackleton told them he was going to rig the, rig the 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 thing to make sure that that the sleeping bags went to the lower ranking men. So they were they were on board with it. And there there are many instances where morale could have fallen down. And, and you talk about motivating teams. But one of the interesting things about teams in Antarctica, and there are many cases where there was adversity in, 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 they were facing adversity, not adversity among the men. Because I think one of the things that was remarkable in this period, and we talk about six expeditions in the book uh, that range from 1901 to about 1917. And there's not even a history of fistfights or murder or mayhem. I mean, you, you look at the history of the Arctic to you know, expeditions to the North Pole, you'll get other expeditions to Antarctica that happened in different periods of time. And, you know, there was, there was attempted murder, there was sabotage, or all sorts of different things could have, that were happening, but not on these expeditions. And these were multi-year expeditions, and we talked about the extreme con- climate conditions, they're living in cramped conditions, craft quarters, they could be stuck in, a, in the same location for days on end in a blizzard. The, uh, and yet at the same time, they ne- the men never really fell out or in a very small way. I mean, there's not a history of people really uh, up falling out and having, like I said, no, no fist fights. And I think one of the ways that worked in that was that these expeditions always had a second in command. And even when they would break out into small teams, like a small scientific team or a small expedition team to go out and explore a certain area, sometimes they'd drop six people off in a certain area to, to explore something, or three people would set off on, on a little mini expedition. There was always a second in command. Mm-hmm. And this second in command gave the men an ability to go to, with Shackleton, the second in command was Frank Wilde. With Captain Scott, the second in command was Edward Wilson, but it gave them a sounding board. They could go to that person, they'd go to Frank Wilde and say, I've got this problem with the guy. They didn't have to go to Shackleton, who they referred to as the boss. They could settle it in a lower hierarchy. And that ability to have, a, have an intermediate, it wasn't the boss, it's not like, oh, okay, you know, like, what's going on here? It was more just, you know, okay, how can we 
peacefully resolve whatever the situation is. And, and that we don't do in business today, not very okay. much. We have COOs and things like that, but we don't really in small teams. And, uh, and I think that, that that's a great lesson for team morale and, and camaraderie, I think, is a second of command. This is an interesting point because one of the things that I always say when I'm working with a team is the importance of their ability to have conflict with each other. First off, you need to. Otherwise, you're not talking about good ideas. And you have different personalities. And you're going to be tested if you're doing anything significant. In this case, you were tested with life and death, but not so much in the corporate world. Could be tested. And so you're going to have times when you adamantly disagree. And your ability to work through that disagreement is a hallmark of whether the team is actually going to be a brilliant team or an average team. But what you're saying here is that it's not the leader of the team who is best positioned to resolve those conflicts. That you need someone else who's got enough of the leader's ear if it's needed, but who doesn't have as much stake. In the um, in the success of the outcome, as if you will, second in command, who can step in as a mediator, an intermediator, a sounding board um, to help resolve whatever the issues are, help clarify. I, you're right. We don't do that. And, and it's it's quite remarkable when you and it's probably one of the most uh, when you're working on a book, and my co-author. David Hertz, when I've worked on this book for two years, and we're constantly on the phone. He's in California, and I'm in London, constantly talking on the phone about the different stories and the different things and what's in the book and what's out of the book. And and uh, and it, it, one day we just hit upon this thing that one of the things that no one had, had written about in Antarctic literature before, and no one seemed to have ever discovered, was actually these second these people who were second in command were really valuable, and that. When you looked at teams, it was across every team. It wasn't just the the famous scenes with Shackleton and the men being stranded on the ice. It was across even these small scientific teams that there was always a second in command. And, and, it, and it, it just seemed to lead to why were they so successful compared to every other expedition, really, that ever happened. Uh, and, and I think that that role was was quite key. And there's there's a wonderful moment. So Shackleton's ship has been crushed. They all they have are these three lifeboats. They've unpacked everything they could, unloaded everything they possibly could from the from the main ship onto the ice and they've got their tents and they're camping out and they're on this ice floe. And they're what's ha- what's gonna happen is the ice floe is going to it's basically floating on the water. And and as the currents drag that ice flow north it get it get drags into warmer water, the ice breaks up. And the ice will break up into smaller, smaller ice flows and icebergs, and eventually they'll be able to launch these lifeboats. Right. So that at one point, Shackleton being a man of action is like, I'm just getting frustrated and bored, and you know, everyone's just, just tired of being camping out on the ice. Like, we need to do something. So he decides we're going to drag the lifeboats across the ice to the edge of the ice and launch them. It's a couple miles. They, this is that point where the, the, the ice flow really is starting to break up. So they're, they're like, okay, you know, this is this is doable. And McNish, this one of the carpenter, the ship's carpenter, who knows a lot about lifeboats and and wood structures and things like that, and he 
has this falling out with Shackleton. And so the men are all pushing this lifeboat. There's this very famous photograph of the men pushing this lifeboat. So you're like, like four or five guys on either side and about 10 guys in front with pulling with, with ropes, pulling this, trying to drag this lifeboat over the, the ice. And even though the ice looks level in the photograph, it's actually quite ripply and, and jagged. And, and as you know from, from any snowstorm, that ice, the snow can actually be quite rough. And so, so McNish gets, feels like the, the, the lifeboats are just getting destroyed. And he confronts Shackleton in front of all the other men and says, this is pointless and we're all just going to die. And basically says, you're destroying the boat. Yeah, they were not, even if we can get them to the, to the edge of the ice, they'll be, they won't be seaworthy. And all of a sudden, Shackleton has this mutiny because this other guy on the other side pipes in as well and takes McNish's side. And, and so you have Shackleton and Frank Wilde dealing with this mutiny. And clearly their, their situation was desperate. And it was interesting how they dealt with it because Shackleton dealt with it like, I'm in charge and I'm in charge of the boat. And even the ship is no longer the ship. I'm still the captain. I'm still leader of the expedition. And McNish is arguing back, saying there's no ship, so you're no longer the ship's captain, and there's no expedition, so you're no longer the expedition's leader, and I'm not taking orders from you. So Frank Wilde walks over, and he's the one who really settles the argument. So it's interesting how this, this and, and um, Shackleton was sort of threatening to shoot McNish, and it's Frank Wilde who has the gun. And so Frank Wilde sort of, like, sort of, Put the more you know lower tone. Just sort of says, give you know, give me a reason to shoot you, sort of thing. Was, but it was a way that the second in command could uh, deal with the situation in a very different way than the leader could. And when they were shutting down the rebellion, it, they were it all the whole event only took place in about twenty minutes. But when when they shut down the, re, the rebellion, it was really both of them working in concert, but with sort of different ways of working with the men. And it was, it was quite, uh, quite insightful. And that was one, you know, so it's really, but seeing this time and time and time again across all the different expeditions, not that they were threatening to shoot each other, because that was the only incident where anything like that happened, but it was the fact that the second in command could be such a wonderful intermediary. You see that, and when you say second in command, they have some authority, but it's not like it's the deputy leader, as in when the leader is away, this person makes the decision. It's a much different role than that. They're the sounding board, the consigliere, I guess, for lack of a better word, for both the captain as well as for the men. They're the moral, you know, they keep the motivation going in some ways. Yes, very definitely. Very definitely. In fact, they were... Uh, in the small in small teams, actually, there was always a second in command, but it wasn't always a stated second in command as well. And mm-hmm. so you have sort of had this de facto person who was second in command just by their personality, mm-hmm. and everyone accepted that was the person who was second in command. And, and it, it's, I think that that dynamic was was beneficial in making the teams teams work in ad, adverse conditions. One of the other things, we sort of move topics a little bit uh, to the concept of decision-making that 
they didn't always make good decisions. And I think we, we don't hold them up. We don't say Shackleton always made good decisions. So he made, yes, the, the, late, the sleeping bag thing was a good decision. Shutting down a mutiny was a good decision. But he didn't always make good decisions. The reason they got stuck in the ice in the first place was because Shackleton made a bad decision. And that bad decision had to do with where they're going to choose their landing site. And they found a landing site, the captain of the ship, who wasn't Shackleton. The uh, captain of the ship said, we should dock here. Like, because you want to land, though Antarctica is surrounded by sea ice, you want to set up your encampment on the land, on the continental land. Because sea ice is constantly shifting and moving, and you, you, you could actually have all the sea ice drift out to sea. And that did happen on expeditions, and and ships got lost. The whole history of things like that. But that that so they see a spot where they could actually pull the boat up to land and cross the ice and actually set up an encampment on on the ice on on the physical land. And Shackleton says, "No, no, we can get closer because if we get closer. I can cut it sixty miles or so off this long walk we're going to do across continental Antarctica." The boat turns away from the shore, and it's that instant that it gets caught in this ice flow and gets stuck. <laughs> now, it was a bad decision, but one of the things that on all across all these expeditions that they were good at was being able to say, if we made a bad decision, we don't dwell on it. We don't berate the person who made the bad decision. We don't. All we can do is say, this is where we are today. How do we move forward? And I think this is very useful when you look at the pandemic. It's like you could have had the best plans in the world in 2019 and January 2020, and next thing you know, your business model is completely different. And as much as you can say, gee, I wish it was in the 2019 and we didn't have this, just like Antarctica's War says, gee, I wish we hadn't gotten our boat stuck in the ice. You are where you are. And the situation with the explorers was they were really good at saying okay just we're not going to dwell on this this past stuff we can't change it if you know we're in a field of ice and crevasses and there's a risk of falling through these crevasses we just got to deal with it we've you know if one of the people is dying of scurvy we've got to deal with it and figure out how we get them to safety but we can't dwell on why they got scurvy or why this happened or why that happened We've just got to take one step forward, put one step, one foot in front of the next. It's just a great lesson for modern, our modern life right now. It's a huge lesson. We spend an inordinate amount of energy and time and emotional drain saying, oh, geez, that person's an idiot and they shouldn't be in charge and we made a bad decision and I want a different day and let's go back and rewind. We, We revisit all of that all the time. Now, here's the hard question for you. Do you think that their lack, the the fact that none of the men dwelled on the decision, good, bad, or indifferent, we're going to deal with what we've got and move forward, is that because they were in such extreme circumstances? Is it because of the quality of the leader himself, or is it this second-in-command that kind of helped rally the troops and say, come on, let's move forward? What do you think led to the not willingness to, the, the not dwelling on the bad stuff? I think they were so focused on their goals, and I think this this was was an important thing. That if their goal was to get to the South Pole, if their goal was to explore a certain uh, areas, and they actually there was one wonderful story in the book about these three men who set off to collect uh, 
penguin eggs. There's a there's a, a, a theory of, of a Victorian theory about that penguins these penguins eggs would be uh, have were previously they were, were reptiles and and their their embryos in the eggs would represent these you know, these half reptilian until they were formed into into penguins. It's like and they were, and you could only collect these in the middle of winter and and these um, it was it was the the goal of of, of Doing these sorts of things. Sorry, I sort of may have lost my train of thought here with yeah, your question. But it was the you said it was the focus on the goals. You know, having very specific goals, scientific goals, yeah. not just the exploration destination goals, that laid them focus right. on next step forward, not getting dwelling on past. Right. So they had these goals. So like even a goal like like trying to find the penguin eggs, these goals were so critical that they could put up with all sorts of hardships. And I think this was the, this was sort of the key to dealing with adversity, to putting one, step in front of, one foot in front of the other, to, uh, to not playing the blame game, to not dealing with why did we get ourselves in the situation we got ourselves in, or is this guy's fault, or this guy didn't plan well, or whatever. They were so goal-driven that that's what, what kept them going, even when the goals were seemingly as silly as collecting a penguin egg. It, it was, it, they had a, a real purpose. All right. And we talk a lot about the importance of purpose, but we sort of get lost on the purpose. We, get the, we overdo that in business today, um, trying to make it more complicated than it needs to be. I think what's interesting about this is I buy into an expedition like these trips because I have to believe that it's a worthy thing to do. And I'm going to go through major adversity. I have to know that starting out. It's not just a vacation on a lovely island somewhere. So I have to believe in the goal. And you said it's a simple goal. It wasn't about the reaching a destination. It was as much about the science as it was about anything else. And it's that goal, the focus on the goal, everybody understanding it, that lets them put the bad stuff, the bad decisions, the unfortunate circumstances behind them and move forward. Okay? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there are three things in this that remind, that just sort of strike me as I'm listening to it, um, that have huge implications for modern times. So one of these is what we were just talking about, the fact that there's a goal, that it's clear, it's very, it has a, it has a meaning beyond just hitting a number or a destination, largely around science or collection or mapping or some version of that one. You also have the wonderful story from um, Shackleton about the, giving the lower-ranking men the sleeping bags and that sense of we are all in this together and everybody's voice counts. That's a very powerful thing. And you have this notion of the second-in-command whose personality is really good at calming down any tensions, at being a great sounding board for people or thinking through what do we do and how do we do it. Those three strike me as really, really applicable for modern business. I mean, reframing what the second-in-command looks like and does and what the role is, rethinking what is the most prized possession I get as a senior leader, and in an adverse moment, how do I give that away in effect? So that's an interesting challenge, not just the lunchroom. I'm talking about the most prized possession and then the goals. Yes. 
And there's one other thing I'd add to all that, which is every time they came to a decision, and this is without fail, every single time they had a decision to make, they made a decision quickly. Now, you can say in the cold of Antarctica, of course you're going to make decisions quickly. But they did have time to analyze things, to think things through, to... But they really did. They, they were more focused on, we're going to choose, and if we made the wrong choice, we will deal with the consequences because we know we're resilient enough to get through it. And with, I think, in modern business and modern, even our, in our modern lives, our personal lives, we can spend so much time on Google and analyzing things and looking at websites and talking with people and and we get into this analysis paralysis okay. as opposed to just being, okay, I'm going to make a decision and I'm going to be know that in myself I'm resilient enough to get through it or to change it or it won't be that bad or I'll make the best of it, but I'm going to make a decision. And they had tough decisions to make. There was a situation where there were, uh, where there were three men, they were on their way back this, and this is actually the start of the whole book because you, you don't tell you who the men are. There's just three men, and they've been walking out 750 miles, and they're on the way back. And one of them's dying of scurvy, and he says to them, to the other two, "Leave me behind." And when they hesitate, he says to them, "You just take the. They only have one tent, and so it's clear that if you that leave them behind, he's just gonna." Die of exposure and, and frostbite. And and then he says, I'm your commanding officer. And he, he wasn't, this, we aren't talking about Captain Scott or Shackleton or Almondson or Mawson. The, the, these were the, uh, it was a small little team. And it just happened that, and this happened in this particular team, he was actually indeed their commanding officer. They were all naval people. And, and he says, as, as commanding officer, leave me behind. I'm giving you a military order. Basically, what that means is to disobey his mutiny, but to leave him behind is to leave him to his death. And they've been together for seven or three miles out, and kind of, you know, almost five hundred miles back. And there's no one going to come to rescue them. And they made the decision very quickly. I mean, here you got this big, tough, it's an ethical, complex decision that you're going to make, and they didn't procrastinate. They're just like, okay, you know, we're just going to make a decision, and the decision was to stay with them. And, and, I mean, the, the story is just remarkable. I mean, there's it, a, a whole you know, chapter devoted to what happens to them next, but it's, it's the, um, that ability to say, I'm going to make a decision quickly helped them. And I think it's something that businesses could learn more to do better today. I think about, in fact, I was just talking with someone today about um, people who get stuck in the ambiguity, particularly as you rise in an organization. The path forward isn't really clear. The decisions all are gray. There's no clear right or wrong answer, as in this case. There's no clear necessarily right or wrong. There's right in one way and wrong in another way. And we get stuck in that ambiguity, and then we don't move. And that just creates more complexity, more problems. And that ability to make a decision, knowing that it may be right, it may be less right. And then I'm going to deal with it. Then we'll go to the next one and the next one and the next one is a unique quality. And that also is, I, I agree with you. Because if you're sitting there thinking about it for the next two hours, you're kind of like even more frozen than you were to begin with. 
Exactly. Exactly. And that's an extreme case in, in Antarctica. But at the same time, what's nice about looking at decisions in, in Antarctica in the early 1900s is they were made in isolation. And when you look at them and analyze them from a point of view of today with all of our modern communication and all the ways we make decisions today, and the, we do overcomplicate things. And looking at why were these expeditions so successful and it had to do with they never hit their goals. It's something that, that yeah, I was ask. you and I talked about way back when we first started planning the show was this concept that, that for all of these six expeditions that we studied, not one of them hit their primary goal. And yet they were all successful. And what was that success that they had if they didn't hit their primary goal? And this is like where you get into like Shackleton and his 28 men and they're stuck on this ice floor and eventually do get themselves back to civilization. And while six, while Shackleton takes one of the lifeboats, ultimately they sail the three lifeboats to Elephant Island, which is an uninhabited island uh, in uh, not far from Antarctica. And then they, uh, Shackleton takes five others and he sails his lifeboat across the roughest seas in the world, 800 miles to South Georgia. South Georgia is a, a small island where there is a whaling station. And it's just the most remarkable survival story in, in history. And, and, mm-hmm. and it's that uh, ability to, to constantly, to never give up, to constantly focus on what's our goal. Our goal is no longer the expedition. Our goal is survival. And we're going to make decisions. They want to always be right decisions, but we're going to make these decisions. We're going to stick together as, as a team. We're going to have seconds in command. We're going to have people who focus on these things. And, and we're, going to, we're going to survive this. Right. And it's a great metaphor for surviving the pandemic, really, for, you know, it's like, just, just keep trying, keep going, keep, you may, you're not going to hit, maybe you're not going to hit the goals that you had when you started 2020, but keep yeah. going, keep striving, keep, keep your, your focus and set some new goals. Or set new goals, whatever it is. It can be different things. I find this fascinating, too. I mean, I, I was stunned when you said to me that not of these six expeditions, not one of them hit their primary goal. Not one. But they all had enormous success. And a lot of the success was around the science. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, some of the additional goals they had beyond just hitting a destination. Sure. Well, maybe before... We get into that. There's a wonderful okay. scene where Shackleton and uh, has this an expedition that was to get to the South Pole and they don't quite make it. And they get to within 100 miles. They get to 102 miles of the South Pole and they are running out of food. They realize they won't get back on the food they have left. And so do they continue forward? Do they go back. And, and what Shackleton does, which seems like a very binary decision of, do I go forward, do I go back? If I go forward, we'll probably die on the way back. If we leave now, we'll probably get back safely, but we'll definitely be starving on the way back, but we'll probably survive this. Is he makes a decision to leave the sleeping bags and tents and everything else behind, and they move forward and to say, we're going to walk south as far as we can for one day, plant a flag, and start heading back after that. And why they do that, it was to cross the 100-mile mark. <laughs> and the reason he went across the 100-mile mark was because it gave them something to say, we achieved something. We planted a flag. We, we did something. Being within 100 miles of South Pole is a whole lot better 
to talk about than we got to 102 miles to the South Pole. And so that's a great way of looking at success and failure and, and missing goals. And, and they were constantly able to look at things and be like, okay, we're going to plant the flag. It wasn't really in the point we wanted to get to, but now we're going to focus on something else. And, and in the science was unbelievable. In these, in, especially in Captain Scott's expedition. And Captain Scott, famously, his expedition was, their goal was to get to the South Pole first, and they lost out to Amundsen. Amundsen got there first five weeks earlier. But across all of Scott's expeditions, he was doing this remarkable science. And when we think today about science coming out of expeditions, we think about NASA. We think about NASA, you know, the uh, anti-corrosion paint. And, oh, people say Teflon and Velcro. I think, well, Teflon and Velcro actually invented before NASA, but started going to the moon. Yeah. But I mean, they certainly used it, and it sort of became popular because of, of of NASA. But a lot of spin-off technologies came out of the space right. era. But a lot of technologies came out of the polar exploration era from Captain Scott. And it's really remarkable. Like he didn't achieve his primary goal, which was getting to the South, being the first to, to the South Pole. But he, what he achieved was so remarkable in terms of like it used to be thought that you want to go down to the South Pole or cold climates, you wear furs. And he's like yeah. going down there. They're wearing wool and cotton and layered clothing. The way we we dress now, if it's cold. If you're in a cold climate, you're told to wear layers, right? That all came from, from Scott's expedition. The concept of photography for, like, when we think about David Attenborough films, these, these wonderful films that came out of uh, modern expeditions about wildlife, about scenery, about land, and all of that originated from expedition photography that pioneered on Scott's expedition. Mm-hmm. He, he was the first expedition to bring a professional photographer to take photographs. And the photogra- right. photographs are absolutely stunning. They're, they're just the most, some of the most remarkable photographs you'd ever see. They're just of the, of the men, of the landscapes, of the ship, of the, the different different things. And, and they pioneered things like um, uh, things like um, tents, so this concept of tents where you normally, like nowadays, you set up a tent, you sort of take the fabric and you shove these, these plastic poles through the tent, and so your poles and your tent are separate. And one mm-hmm. of the reasons for that is you can pack your tent very small, and the poles pack up very small. But what, what Scott discovered and his teams discovered was actually if you build your tent with the poles in them, wrapped in the fabric, so you're, you're, it's integral. Yes, you've got to carry a much bigger object on your on your on your sledge, but on the other hand, you can put this up in a blizzard. So being able to yeah. put up a tent in a few minutes in a blizzard is just a, a remarkable thing. It's like everything they looked at. Amundsen was looking at snow goggles and trying to figure out how mm-hmm. to, what's the best design for snow goggles. Because we're constantly innovating around materials, around food, around around. They didn't know calories. They didn't know vitamins. They didn't know there are tons they didn't know that we know with modern science, but they were constantly looking at how do we innovate, how do we create better, more nutritious food, 
uh, more uh, better things. They were like, we won't, we don't have, there are no airplanes. So how do we see the terrain? How do we know where we're headed towards? And they, they get a, they brought, the Scots team brings a helium balloon and they take these flights, you know, like 700 feet in the air uh, to see the, the landscape. And you know, it's the first manned flight flights in, in Antarctica. And it's like, and this is the early 1900s before airplanes were invented. And it's like, it's the most remarkable stuff. And, and uh, it's, it's uh, insp- inspirational. Well, you see the innovation in terms of the survival of what was going on to make sure that we all came home alive. You see that innovation there. What we often don't see is the innovation it took to actually launch the expedition and to conduct the kind of experiments and data collection that they were there to do also as well. Um, There's a lovely story about the science of collecting water samples or and how it's informed us in modern times. Can you tell us that story? Sure. There, there are several interesting stories because one of the things that they were collecting, uh, well, one thing that's, that's interesting about Scott's expedition is they collected tons and tons of material. And a lot of that ended up in, in places like the Natural History Museum in London. Mm-hmm. What we're doing now with that material is we're analyzing it with modern methods. So we've got 2020 you know, technology developed in, in 2020 that's far better at analyzing all sorts of different things, algae that, that was brought back, animal furs that were brought back, all sorts of different things that, that they brought back that we can now analyze with our very advanced technology that they couldn't analyze then. And so we can set a baseline for climate change based on what they did by analyzing what, not only their records and what they were recording in the early 1900s, but also analyzing things they brought back with modern methods. And that's quite exciting. But there's, a, there's an additional exciting story that came out of all this as well, which is in the 1960s and 70s, DDT was banned. And the reason DDT was banned, it was a pesticide. And it was a very uh, destructive pesticide. It killed basically insects and, and bugs and made better farming, but it was so invasive into species that what people started realizing was it was invading, it was, it was so endemic across all of the world that was in, it was in penguins in Antarctica. Okay. And then people started saying, well, if it was in penguins in Antarctica, how do you know that's not like sort of part of the DNA of a penguin? How do you know it's not like in penguins? It's not like, it's, it, you know, they're unusual creatures. In, in the climate they, they survive in and how they survive. And, and so they went back to, so the scientific teams are analyzing DDT and deciding whether it should be banned or not, went to the penguin skins in the Natural History Museum brought back by Scott's first expedition. And these penguin skins, skins date back to 1901. And they start analyzing those and realize those don't have DDT in them, but modern penguins in the 1960s, well, the, pe- the penguins in the 1960s did. And that was became the baseline proof point for helping make the argument that DDT needs to be banned. And it was banned across all That's countries. Fabulous. Uh, in the, I believe in, in the late 60s and 70s. It was just a, it was a remarkable thing. And you, you come back to all of that came... They, they needed that baseline from these early expeditions to do that. So it's, it's just a it's just a wonderful story. It's um, 
it comes back to this whole notion to me about recognizing that there is a main goal, yes, a primary goal. It has to do with achieving a particular location, but that there were many other goals along the way. There were science goals. There were discoveries of better ways of doing a whole range of things. There was innovation. Um, there were all of these species to collect and to return photographs to take, I mean, just so much to do, and that those things became the markers of success more so than the destination. And I think that has has massive lessons for modern times for people thinking about the goals they set, like the goal of setting, I want to be at a particular title by a particular time in my career, for example, promotion. And that is just one if you think more broadly about all the other things you're going to learn and experience and do and innovate and create and develop, um, you find that strength to keep going to face some of the adversity, even when you're not going to hit your primary goal. I just, to me, that is a huge part of the story. That plus keeping everybody together in such adverse conditions is amazing. Yes, absolutely. And, and that goal has a very personal relevance to me because I was one of those people who set myself a goal. I wanted to get to a certain level, and, and I work for SAP. I have this goal. I wanted to get to a certain level in SAP, and I realized I wasn't going to get there. I mean, didn't have the talent or didn't have the skill or whatever. was not going to get there. And just like with Shackleton, getting close to the, to the South Pole but not reaching it, and say, okay, I'm going to plant a flag and say, that's it. I'm going to head back now. And actually, in Shackleton's case, he wrote uh, a letter to his wife at that point and said, I thought you'd rather have a live donkey than a dead lion. <laughs> Meaning, <laughs> so, yeah, basically, and, and I, that, and, and that was sort of the emphasis for, for me writing the book because I got to a point and I said, I'm not going to get to the level I want to get to, so I'm going to plant a flag and I'm going to do something else. I'm going to go... Okay. And I thought, I've, I've always talked about writing this book and bringing decision-making and Antarctica together and, and taking it from a business perspective and a leadership perspective, a teamwork perspective. And I thought, okay, now I'm going to do it and I'll find myself a co-author and found this wonderful and off we go. Antarctica Fabulous. historian. Brad, and, uh, we could and keep we talking about this for hours because I think we have only barely scratched the surface on the lessons that are in here. And sadly, we are out of time. My guest today is Brad Borkin. The book, When Your Life Depends on It. If you want to know more, I promise you there are tons of stories in there with lots of parallels for today. You can reach Brad by email at brad.borkin at gmail.com. Brad, thanks for being a guest today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Wanda. Pleasure. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.